Uh, this session will finish at one o'clock. It's lunch then. Um, just to remind, uh, we have to pick up our children. They don't appear by magic. We have to go and pick them up. So please be aware of that uh, at the end of this session. And if you've got empty cups uh, and uh, saucers, if we could just put them on the back table just now. But if you're still drinking, don't worry. But if you've got empty ones, I think they're looking to clear them up. So thank you. Well, uh, hopefully you're all suitably uh, fed and watered. Let's turn again to uh, the book of Genesis and to chapter 38, please. Well, first, our theme was living the dream. Uh, our second one is uh, living with disgrace. This uh, chapter, uh, a long time confused me. Uh, why on earth is it here? But let's uh, together try and find out, shall we? So here's the story of Joseph. And you could sort of pull chapter 38 out and the Joseph narrative then, you know, he's in Potiphar's house and everything happens there. Look at that later. Why is 38 here? Well, let's read it first so we know where we're going. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. There Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and lay with her, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Er. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kazib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Lie with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as your brother-in-law to produce offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring wouldn't be his, so whenever he lay with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from producing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so he put him to death also. Judah then said to his, daughters in, to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, He may die too, just like his brother's. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah, to the man who was shearing his sheep, and his friend Hira the Adullamite went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnar, for she saw that though Shelah had gr grown, now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, <coughs> he thought she was a prostitute, for she'd covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep? with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, what pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil, put on her widow's clothes again. 
Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adolamite, in order to get his pledge back from the woman. Uh, but he didn't find her. He asked the men who lived there, where's the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at Enaim? There hasn't been any shrine prostitutes here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said, there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, oh, let her keep what she has, or we'll become a laughingstock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burn to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law, I'm pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see, if you recognize who seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son Shelah. And he didn't sleep with her again. And when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. And as she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand. So the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, this one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out. And she said, so this is how you've broken out. And he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out, and he was given the name Zira. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Open our eyes, Lord. We want to see Jesus, to reach out by faith and touch Him and say that we love Him. Open our ears, Lord, and help us to listen. Open our eyes, Lord. We want to see Jesus. Amen. Well, do you remember these characters? Who's on the left? Yeah, John Profumo and one of the young women tied up, Christine Keeler. John Profumo, great man, minister, defense, and it was all to do with spies and reds under the beds, and, and it devastated British society in the 1960s when a lot of these things could be hidden all across the Sunday newspapers. John Profumo lived the rest of his life with this massive baggage. I think he himself tried to write lots of things, but he was lured into this uh, realm of, of prostitution and all sorts of stuff. I mean, thankfully, it doesn't happen very often, does it? <clears throat> Ask John Major. John Major, for goodness sake. And Edwina Curry. Man alive. <laughs> so he wasn't so gray after all, was he? Though I think she might have turned him gray. I don't know. And Bill Clinton, Monica Lou, trips off the lips, doesn't it? You know, kind of folk you think, that could never happen. And then that super injunction, and the best, one of the best headlines I've seen in a long time, when it became clear it was Ryan Giggs. And, it, and the headline, it was the mail or something, it didn't have saving private Ryan, it was naming private Ryan. It's clever, that, isn't it? Do you know why? Because ultimately, there's never been a secret sin. 
The Bible says, all things are naked and revealed to the God with whom we have to do. So when we mess up in secret, we are idiots in the sense that we think, well, nobody will ever find out. You know the kid, a uh, funny school kid, kids have uh, been in an RE lessons and he's told, you know, God's omniscient, he knows everything, he sees everything, and he keeps his eye on you. And when it came to school lunch, the, uh, the uh, chef came out and he said, now, boys and girls, he said, there's uh, these apples here, you're only allowed to take one. And don't forget what you heard in RE, God's watching you. So a little kid makes his way to the far end and starts grabbing these penguins, stopping them in his pocket and says, hey guys, down here, come and grab as many penguins as you want because God's watching the apples. <laughs> well, God sees everything. Well, welcome, sadly, to this 38th chapter of Genesis, living with disgrace. And I want to walk you into the narrative, if I may, because... Um, at one level, it's easy just to read it, knowing Judah becomes a great leader as the background of a great leader, and you learn from it, all have got, you know, feet of clay, and uh, big, big guys can mess up big time, and we've all got skeletons in the cupboard, and it then becomes a tale of morality. And of course, you can read the Bible and do that with it, but that's not its primary intention. If you read the narrative carefully, you've got chapter 37, Joseph, young guy, chapter 38, Judah, messing around, clowning around into what he thinks is prostitution and discovering it's his daughter-in-law. And then chapter 39, we look at it later, you find Joseph confronted by sexual sin as well. And for his fidelity to his God, he ends up in prison. Do you see the juxtaposition? Here's one guy, Judah, who really fouls it up. And it's kind of counterpoised by a 17-year-old, maybe into his early 20s, who when he's faced with the onslaught of sexual temptation from his master's wife, day after day after day, he keeps walking away till one day she takes her opportunity, quote, Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. And he ends up in prison. And that juxtaposition is really important because it's telling us that there are times when God will use people, and he eventually uses Judah in his line, but there's times when he, he has to park people for a while who really mess up, who really screw up, and, and the person he's going to use to save his people is not now from the line of Judah, but from the line of Joseph, that's really important in the big story of the Bible, because the story of the Bible is God telling us who He is and what He's about. We can read all these little tales of morality, and that's okay, but it's not the big story. The big story is how God Himself is going to come and save a human race. And when, by the time you finish with Judah, you think, well, can there be hope for anybody? Because you could read chapter 38, and if you closed your Bible, anyway, that was where it finished in Genesis. Well, there we are. It's the end of God's plans and purposes, isn't it? Come with me into the narrative. Note that little phrase, at that time, Judah went down. And then verse 12, after a long time. Now, if you do the maths through the book of Genesis, and I'm not going to turn to it, but if you look at chapter 41, verse 46, and chapter 45, verse 11, you'll find that there's a 22-year span 
of years, by which time Joseph comes back on the scene with his brothers and makes himself known to them. So we're not quite sure when this is happening. Is it in that 22-year span? Or is it something that, because sometimes biblical phrases work like that, is this something that had happened to Judah before? We don't know for sure. What we could do in cutting to the chase is say this, how old was Judah when this happened? Well, he certainly wasn't fresh-faced youth like Joseph. He, he may have been, you know, in that, those middle years. And you can choose where your middle years start now, can't you? You know, 35, 40, 40 upwards through to 60, 65. Will you still need me? Will you still feed me? When I'm 64, bottom bump. And then you're a real old geezer because you can't collect your pension either. You know, all that stuff. It's in his middle years. Can we, can we, can we settle on that? Would you, would you go with that? He's no spring chicken, but he hasn't yet, you know, got ready kind of for an old folks facility. He's in those dynamic middle years. He's come a long way. He's had the kids. He's had a family. And now he's... He's bowling alone, and problems begin to happen. So let's just say he's middle-aged, and you can decide what age that is. I don't know what age he was. The Bible doesn't tell us. And it's here to remind us that, yes, there's this great public scandal and everything else. People say today, listen, what happens in your personal life has no bearing on your public life. That's why jokers can you know, just reinvent themselves in politics and everything else all the time, isn't it? Some years ago now, when he was uh, president of the Euro vice president of the European uh, uh, Parliament, uh, well-known Christian businessman and uh, thinker, Sir Fred Catherwood, had some words to say, which we'll come to in a moment. But I want to uh, preface them by some words I read last week. I don't want to say who it was, but actually, it's all public domain. And all I want to say is, I can't tell you how poignant it is being in this place, knowing the leader involved. Last Thursday, Charlie, let's call him, stepped down as the leader of, by mutual agreement with the leadership. Charlie's made a decision to enter into an inappropriate relationship with someone other than his wife. Charlie recognized that this made his position untenable and his actions are ones that the leadership could never condone. Finally, Charlie's actions have created a significant and immediate financial challenge for his wife and their four children. I'm glad to let you know that a compassion fund has been established, dot, 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 chairman. Last night I was, was driving up here from Bournemouth. I phoned a friend of mine, good friend, very close friend at one time, worked together in various uh, Christian events, Inten immensely gifted, fellow Evertonian. But six years ago, splashed right across the daily newspapers, Vicar has f affair with his female curate. And chatting to him, a uh, man has stayed with his wife, who's put things right as far as he can, he said, Steve, you go through a process 
where you almost have to reinvent yourself. An immensely gifted minister of the gospel. And now um, doing, you know, a good daily job. Nothing wrong with that. We sanctify the workplace, whatever we're called to do. But he wasn't made primarily for being in a debt collecting firm. And he screwed up big time, massively. And that's why Sir Fred Catherwood some years ago said this. We cannot have permissiveness in sex and expect that we'll not also have it in violence. This is about 20 years ago. Or in tax avoidance or corruption and bribery in high places. People today want permissiveness in the bedroom, but not in the boardroom. In the casino, but not in the bank. If we promote permissiveness where we want it, we find permissiveness where we don't want it. These are prophetic words, aren't they? Did you ever hear about Nick Leeson, Bering's Bank, the oldest merchant bank? He brought it down, didn't he? Because he told the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, right? Um, Bernie Madoff, who made off with us, is $67.2 billion. He was always telling the truth, wasn't he, in that Ponzi sort of thing? Uh, Lehman Brothers, uh, have you heard of the banking crisis, by the way? Did the banking crisis happen because people were truthful? No. And do we think that the bankers, and if you want, I, you know, I'm not dishing you all no more than, you know, all the, the vicars are dished because somebody goes wrong. But did some of, have some of the bankers had their snouts in the trough? I mean, thank goodness, at least on the LIBOR scandal, everybody's telling the truth on that as well, right? And Bob Diamond has now proved that... Uh, James Bond film isn't true. Diamonds are not forever. He's gone. But thank goodness in this world, at least you can trust the politicians, right? What? Oh, you mean all those guys who are fiddling their expenses? And thank God for good politicians. We are in a very dangerous situation in Britain when we don't trust our institutions. We don't trust the police anymore. Look at Hillsborough. Discredit. Chief Constable sacked just today for lying in another force. And on and on it goes. And we've, our hearts go out to those two young PCs gunned down. But we lose faith in the police, in our political institutions, in the church. We are a massively cynical nation, nations here in Great Britain. And we've got cause to be. And when jokers say, what you do in the bedroom has nothing to do with what you do in the boardroom. They are whistling Dixie. And have you noticed the secularists, they say, and keep your religion out of the workplace. Oh, but let me bring my unbelief in. Let me bring my lies in. Let me bring my cheating. And is that okay? And you say, well, that doesn't... Of course it happens, because what you are is a worldview. And the idea that the secularist is wonderfully objective and he doesn't have any sort of baggage he brings is absolute, utter nonsense. If I had somebody in my, a first-year philosophy class and they said, well, no, you know, non, you know, I've got no presuppositions, I've got no angle on things, you say, get out and get your head together. Don't be so blooming stupid. Everybody believes something. Everybody... Atheists believe there's no God. They can't prove it. That's why when they had the bus adverts, they couldn't say there's no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy, you know, your life. They had to say there's probably no God because they couldn't prove it. I like what they did outside a church where there was a bus stop. 
They had a big notice outside and said, there's probably no bus. Now stop worrying and come inside and enjoy God. That was very good with past. <laughs> and we're confronted here by a society that thinks your integrity can be one thing here and one thing there. There's three things, says Confucianism, about a person. There's the man you think you are. There's the man others think you are. There's the man you are. Christianity could say exactly the same, couldn't it? The person you think you are, the person others think you are, the person you are. We need men and women of integrity. Of course, as you read the narrative, it does at least... It starts strangely right. And I say strangely right. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam. That geographically he goes down, but that's a little marker because he is going down too in other ways from the purposes of God. And there, Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. We're not even told their name except that it's that little word, Canaanite. Uh, and you notice he does do certain things right. He married her and lay with her. Do you notice the order? The Bible doesn't teach love, sex, and marriage. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches love, marriage, and sex. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two become one flesh, Genesis 2, 24. I say to young folk and folk all the time, now listen, the Bible's teaching on sexuality is so simple, you have to be absolutely stupid, moronic, not to get it. The Bible teaches love, marriage, sex. Which bit didn't you understand? So any form of sexual liaison outside of the marriage bond, God says no to. We had a joker recently put on his Facebook, previous uh, student. Oh, please rejoice with me. My girlfriend's having our first baby next March. Then he's wondering why I'm not given three hoops for joy. Because he's actually stepped out of God's pattern for human you might, you might like what I'm saying. I don't, I don't care. what. It's because it's not my view, you see. You better take it up with your maker. It's what this book teaches. And if you don't believe that, that's fine. You'll believe something else. But I stand on this book. That's what it teaches. I'm only telling you what the Bible says. That's my task. There's some churches where you can't say that anymore because we don't want to offend people. Well, listen, you'd be really offended when you stand before God and He says, what did you do that for? Didn't anybody ever tell you? I mean, which part don't you understand? Love, marriage, sex, period. And that answers all, you know, all the issues of gay sex and heterosexual sex and everything else. It's amazing, of course, there's Im immense hypocrisy around, you know, the guys who are gay bashers and homophobic, as whatever, you know, but they're living with their girlfriends or they're sleeping around. But they're, quote, normal. And, th and then we hang out to dry homosexual sex as if, that's worse, like, you know, that's, oh, you know, they're really, no. <laughs> the Bible teaches it all, you know. If you're living in a relationship outside of commitment to marriage, I don't care who you are, I'm sorry if it offends you, I'm not trying to be offensive, I'm just telling you what the book says from God, you're living wrongly. God wants you to get over it and then get on with it and put it right. But at least he did the right thing. But the trouble is, he did the right thing <laughs> but he married the wrong woman because he married a Canaanite. Now, now, that's really important because, you see, eventually, the rest of the narrative, they take him down to Egypt, get sorted out in Egypt. Why did they get sorted out in Egypt? Because the Egyptians hated shepherds and they're shepherds. 
And God eventually has to take his people down to Egypt and almost kind of shrink-wrap them. He has to uh, put them uh, in some form of quarantine away from the Egyptians and the Canaanites. Do you know why? Because unlike the Egyptians, the Canaanites were nice people. They were a friendly bunch. Well, what's the deal then? Well, God says, well, the trouble with the Canaanites is they worship all the wrong gods. And if my people start intermarrying with this lot, soon there'll be no Judah, there'll be no Jewish identity in what we thought before. There'll soon be no Jesus. The Jewish race is chosen because it's going to be God's method of entering the human race to be the savior of the world. But these Jewish, these, this family of Jacob, ultimately the Jewish race, the 12 tribes of Israel, I tell you what, they make a good fist of screwing up God's purposes. Now just pause. Now that should encourage you, actually. Because if you screwed up and messed up, and God wasn't through with these jokers, then he ain't through with you either, okay? So just get your chins up a bit, all right? That's the purpose. This is the bigger narrative. The Canaanites are friendly. Uh, and so here's this guy. He's moved away from his family and his friends. Just like when your kids move away off to college or university, you pray they're going to meet folk who are going to help them. They're not going to fall in with the wrong company. But he, he falls in with this, this mate of his, and I'm sure he's a good guy. But he wasn't a believer. He wasn't a worshiper of Yahweh, the great and eternal God. And this friend leads him in paths that are going to take him away from God. We need to pray desperately for our family and our friends that they forge good friendships with people. Our grandkids, I'm in a situation praying, Lord, please raise up good friends around my grandchildren. They won't be perfect, but they folk who will help them because the spirit's willing and the flesh is weak, who help them to walk with you. you. Remember, one bad kid can drag your kid into drug abuse. One good kid can maybe rescue or bring them back from it, keep them from it altogether. So here's the first thing about him. <sighs> bad choices. Here's the second thing. Tragic circumstances. Walk with me again into the narrative. Uh, he has these uh, boys, three of them. And uh, again, we're, we're told how, it, how this comes about. She conceived and Judah got a wife for heir. Verse 6, you see that? He got a wife for heir. I, I wonder whether he had the experience I had about uh, three and a half years ago. My son was coming up 30 uh, he's a big guy, my son. He's got muscles where I haven't got places. <laughs> and uh, he was living at home with me. And uh, we talk about the day he was going to find Miss Perfect. Now, he got to that stage where the desirable wasn't attainable and the attainable wasn't desirable. <laughs> and I used to say to him, listen, pal, if you're offering perfection, feel free to demand it. But as your dad, in lieu of saying, get real. So no woman on earth was good enough for him. You know, it was just a, and, and guys get to that stage, early 30s, when they are unmanageable and eventually unmarriageable. And I'm thinking, I'm going to be stuck with him when I'm an old pensioner. 
Anyway, fast move on. Three years ago, last May, June, I got a, call, a phone call from some friends of mine, a friend of mine, a couple, um, the lady phoned me up and said, you've heard about Peter, a 62-year-old lawyer husband. No? What? She said, he's had a brain tumor. Three weeks, died. Will you take the funeral? And my default, because it was my old church, is, no, you must ask the pastor there to do it. No, she said, he's, he's on sabbatical anyway. It's a private funeral, a family friend. Of course I'll take it. So I went around to see her, to arrange the funeral with her and her daughter, Becky. Now, Becky looks like she's just walked off, you know, off a catwalk. She is a stunningly beautiful young woman, late, late 20s, 27, 28. And, and I was sitting there, I said to her, oh, I said, hey, Becky, because I'd only seen her once in a dozen years since I'd left the church. Um, and I thought, what a wonderful lo- young woman she'd grown into, godly and good, funny, and, you know. And I said to her, hey, Becky, uh, you, well, she had a ring on her finger. I said, are you engaged? She said, oh, not me, Pastor Steve. No Christian men around. And I'm thinking, <laughs> I know of one. So I said to Paul, hey, have you seen Becky these last few years? No. I said, I tell you, Paul, she's a oh, stunningly beautiful, wonderful young woman. Great. Sir. Yeah. I said, well, she's coming for lunch on Sunday. <laughs> With her mom and your sister and all the family going to be there. You will be there. He looks at me. I mean, can you imagine this saying to to somebody like me? He says, don't you try and arrange anything for me. I said, would I do that? (laughs) Yes, you would. Well, that was the heat treatment. I mean, you have to get desperate. I said, son, has the milk of human kindness gone sour in your little bitter soul? Is it got a lump of concrete in there around the heart of flesh? I said, she's just lost their dad, for goodness sake. (laughs) I might be there. He was there. His eyes were on stalks. Twelve, mo- <laughs> Twelve months later, results, I married them. Out you go, have a nice day. He can't believe his luck. <laughs> See me afterwards for further details, you know. Lots of parents said, could you come and do likewise for me, you know. Well, here's the deal. He, he got a wife, but it all goes wrong. Again, it's not a believing wife, and there's marital perversion, maybe, with the first uh, guy. And then Onan, this is something you can read about in Deuteronomy 25. It's called lever, is the, the Latin. It means brother-in-law. It's all to do with property rights and anything else. So Onan, and it gives us an English word, Onanism, which we won't go into and what it means. Uh, but you can look it up in the dictionary. He, he's slain as well. So suddenly, two sons have died to this woman. And I imagine Judas thinking, she's a black widow. And he's got a younger son, and he's the next in line, and he's probably thinking, she's bad news. Maybe there's a touch of superstition, but you've lost two sons married to this woman. It's all her fault. But he's thinking, no more. And so uh, he's fobbing her off, isn't he? Judah said to his daughter-in-law, live as a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. But he thought, he thought, he may die too, just like his brother's. And so Tamar went to live in her father's house, and of course, then he grows up, and nothing's going to happen. And then, of course, something happens. Um, After a long time, verse 12, uh, Judah's wife died. So this is a family. These are the tragic circumstances. This is the stuff of life, isn't it? Death. He's lost two sons, and he's lost a wife. And now he's massively vulnerable. He's in his middle years. 
and he's a widower. We massively underestimate the power of temptation in our middle years, even sexually. As the old guy said, you know, the white hair, just because there's snow on the roof doesn't mean the fire's gone out. You know what saga stands for? Sexually active geriatrics abroad. <laughs> and you know, venereal disease in that age group is rampant. Because the swingers from the 60s, now with, you know, kind of Viagra and everything else, think they can uh, be swinging around it's in their 60s and 70s. This is the kind of society we live in. So one day, you know, once upon a time, family fell apart. You could give them to the grandkids, the grandkids to the grandparents, but the grandparents are in dysfunctional relationships too today. It's all part of our permissive society. And this guy's in grief after a long time. And when Judah had recovered, notice this verse 12, from his grief. How long does it take to get over losing a loved one, a life's partner? It's as long as a piece of string. There is a grief process. Uh, and he went up to Timnah. See, he'd gone down, now he goes up. He's feeling better. Uh, and there's obviously high spirits and the wine's flowing free and he's feeling great again and he's a new man and new you know, kind of, and his hormones are still firing away. Grace, generally speaking, grace does not neuter your hormones. You got that? It just doesn't go away. And we need to remember that around the church with single p people, with folk who, there's a very perceptive and good article by a vicar, St. Ebb's vicar, uh, Vaughan Roberts, uh, in Oxford, a dear guy, great Bible teacher, one of his great battles, single bloke is his same-sex attraction. It's just been published. The Guardian, I think, got hold of it and completely miscued and everything. Are you therefore homosexual? He says, I have same-sex attraction. Does that mean I have liberty to go around? This is one of his battles. A lot of folk are on a, a spectrum. You know, we talk about gay and straight and and by actually, none of us are straight sexually. We're all part of a broken world. <laughs> That's why I don't like the word straight. What does that mean? I've never had an impure thought. So when it comes to the church, and he's got some good things to say there, around single people who've never been married or folk who are battling with their sexual identity or whatever, we, we've, got to, we've got to be, we've got to have not only accountability, we've got to have warm and welcoming structures where we can have friendship without thinking it's got to all the time devolve into sexual expression. And if churches can't do that, where are people going to go? And we know where they go. So the Bible teaches love, marriage, and sex. And what happens when I'm struggling there? Well, you're not alone, and you're not supposed to be alone. And this guy is a single bloke, and God's normal way of dealing with our sexual drives is remember years ago, thankfully I can't remember the couple, I was still a pastor in East London, I was doing some premarital counseling, I had this couple in, all I can remember is they were very prim and proper, they were super spiritual, like Mrs. Flushpool, who is in the sacred diary of Adrian Plass, oh in the natural I used to drink coffee, oh in the natural I used to eat meat, you know, it's all kind of, yeah. and, um, and they were a bit like that, they were sort of, oh so spiritual, so, 
So I'm preparing. You're only a youngish couple, I'm 25, better. So I said, to, I just said to them, by the way, I said, um, do you burn with passion for each other? <laughs> oh, no, no, pastor, we're Christians. <laughs> I said, um, well, when you do, come back, because 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9 says, it's better to marry than to be aflame with passion. And if you haven't got that, you definitely shouldn't marry. And you know when you can see the telepathy going on? Hey, well, we have had our moments. You know, yeah, give me a break. Give me a break. And some of us blokes, we, we, we need accountability. We may be other blokes, but we're battling as well as if we're married. Whatever, I'm just saying, this guy is vulnerable, you see. If that doesn't make it right. Temptations are there to be resisted, not to be enjoyed <laughs> and capitulated to. And this is a temptation for him. And when Tamar was told her father-in-law is on his way to Timnus, she, she took off her with his clothes. It, it doesn't look like he was playing in the field, but it may have just been as a perceptive, intuitive female. She just saw an opportunity. I don't think she's like uh, Potiphar's wife. She's not a femme fatale. She uses ingenuity here, and he eventually says she's more righteous than I. What she did was wrong, but... What he did was doubly wrong. And she just sees this weak spot, and, and it becomes exploitable. Maybe she had her spies out. Uh, and, and, and so when Judah saw her, he thought, verse 15, she was a prostitute. Hmm. He makes some bad choices, this guy, doesn't he? Marries outside of the faith, keeps his son back from Tamar. And then, now he's in high spirits, maybe too much alcohol. Alcohol, as you know, pharmacologically speaking, I'm not going to even try and repeat that phrase, is a depressant. It knocks out the higher reaches of your brain. It's not a stimulant. That's why people do things when they've had too much to drink that they then later regret. How many folk have woken up in a strange bed with somebody they really didn't know, or whatever, because of alcoholic abuse. Whatever. He does what he shouldn't have done. I've done. Bad choices, tragic circumstances, inevitable consequences. Inevitable consequences. Sin is committed. The Bible makes no bones about that. Don't you love the honesty of the Bible? It doesn't say, here are these superheroes, you know, they floated through well and they never had any problems. I mean, this is meant so we identify them because these are real flesh and blood individuals, red-blooded blokes in this case. And, and here he is, and he commits sin suddenly, openly, and inexcusably. You say, why inexcusably? Well, he could have remarried, couldn't he? Hello? In that culture, there's all, you know, maybe there was far, like in so often in many churches, there's often more, bless you, women around than blokes. So he could have remarried. He could have done the decent thing, but he didn't. Didn't want the responsibility or whatever. Who knows? And... His sin suddenly committed is then quickly, thankfully, detected. Of course, he finds out that uh, his daughter-in-law is pregnant. And can you feel the sheer male chauvinism coming through here? You're meant to feel it. Ladies, you're meant to say, you male chauvinist P-I-G. Because that's what he is. He's living by one set of rules. He's, 
he's had sex with a prostitute, and then he finds his daughter-in-law has had sex with who knows whom, and he's prepared to let her be burned to death like Georgie Best. Do you remember him? I spent, you know, thousands on wine, women, song, fast cars, and the rest I wasted. I often went missing, Miss England, Miss America, whatever you know. And yet he had at one point the temerity to say he wanted to marry a virgin. Cheeky sir, blighter. I'm glad to hear that maybe, I don't know, maybe on his deathbed, because he had Christian family and everything else, and Christian surgeon, Christian nurse, I heard he may have repented. Let's pray that, I pray that that's so. I don't know. I'm just using an illustration as a wastrel. One set of rules for him, sleep with whom you can get away with, and another set for the woman he's going to marry. We blokes, I tell you what, many of us need a good blooming slapping in love in this area. We are such experienced hypocrites. He was male chauvinist pig that he was. He's going to have this young girl without due process, not only hung out to dry, but dragged out to die. And then she uh, produces the evidence, like Monica Lewinsky. And now we all know, sorry to be blunt, the size of Bill Clinton's penis. It's all across the media, on the BBC, public domain. Because as I said, there's never been a secret sin. He's given her, well, notice what she says. I'm pregnant by the man who owns these. See if you recognize whose seal, cord, and staff these are. Some have put it like this. Your seal, cord, and staff talk about your identity, your security, and your stability. <laughs> and what does sin do to your identity, your security, and your stability? It takes them from you. This friend chatting to poignantly last night, I said, I hope there's going to come a day when you're going to be able to tell folk, although he's forgiven and he's tasted grace, how hard the road is. The world will show you, you know, all the flesh pots and everything else and how fantastic it is, but it doesn't show you light. And it'll, the, bio, the devil will show you David's adultery, and it won't take you to Psalm 51 where he talks about his broken bones or the narrative where he's lost his son conceived in adultery. It doesn't show you the heartbreak and the pain and the sorrow. It's not like the TV. It's not like the movies. They don't live happily ever after. I mean, if you're ever feeling, you know, in a good mood, please have a, a look at, I, I, can't, I can't bear to watch it, but have a look at, you know, a few editions of EastEnders and then make sure you, you put yourself on Prozac, won't you? <laughs> oh, blooming miserable. I was a pastor in the East End for a decade. I mean, thank, thank the Lord they weren't as miserable as most of those jokers. Because it's all make-believe. Oh, they're trying to mirror something. They're also trying to create something. And bless him, he comes clean, doesn't he? She's more righteous, verse 26, than I. More in the right. There's never been a secret sin. Could it be that you're living in denial about something? About someone? Somebody listening on the CD, and you copied this. 
You can't hide from God, you know. This friend told me that various other folk had been to him since his misdemeanors became public domain to tell him that they'd messed up in this area, but thankfully they hadn't been caught out and they'd continued in what they were doing. Not they'd finished the relationship, but, you know, So somebody decides to put something on a web site, and on and on it goes. Frightening, really, isn't it? Be sure your sins will find you out. So we could finish there and go off for lunch and be totally depressed. <laughs> so let's just do that, shall we? <laughs> well, as Jimmy Cricket would say, and there's more, because this is his life just an ash heap, just burned out, messed up, screwed up, because he screwed around. Last week, uh, with our students, I was talking about the metaphor of matches, you know, like that like packet you get from uh, in a hotel room or whatever, you know, the little, and there it is at the top, all full of potential. And some of our students come, and they're like those top band of matches. They're, they're unstruck, they're unlit, but they're full of potential. So are you. But of course, the only way that those matches ignite is, you take an ordinary box of matches, you know, a form of sandpaper on the side. I was saying, God's got to sometimes put you next to sandpaper characters who <laughs> ignite you, <laughs> you know. There's some things you need that will ignite you and get you going. Wait! But the trouble is, unless that flame is fed by the Spirit of God, like in Zechariah 4, these two olive branches, they're fed by, not by my, by my power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. They're tuned in, or like the bush in Exodus 3, that burns but is not consumed. God wants you to burn for Him without burning out. He wants you to burn for Him but not be consumed. That's what the Spirit of God wants to do in you. I've been a, a full-time Christian worker, pastor for about 40 years. There are 17 matches here. I could just keep going back and forth to lunch and beyond with people I know who's, who are there today. Burned out on the ash heap, finished with useless. Is that where it all finishes? Bad choices, tragic circumstances, inevitable consequences, but you know what? The narrative doesn't finish at Genesis 38. It doesn't say, well, that's it. Off you go then to lunch and don't have a nice day. Because if you read on in the narrative, after Judah comes clean, whoever, con whoever conceals his sin, says Proverbs 28, whoever conceals his sin will not prosper. But whoever confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin, so we confess our sins. We come clean. The word confess means we agree with God. We speak the same words, literally, from the Greek. We, we stand with God and say, God, I'm standing against that wretch down there. And not that I've been a silly little footage. No, you've been, a, you've been a sinner. You've screwed it up. You've done what you know is wrong. Come clean. But whoever comes clean with God obtains what? Mercy. 
all stand there needing mercy, don't we? And needing grace because as you read on the narrative, you find that Judah becomes the key player when Benjamin, his kid brother's life is on the line, and Joseph is playing a game with them to see what's in their hearts, and Judah says, look, let the boy go home to his dad. It will break the old guy's heart if I don't go back, but you just take my life. And suddenly Judah begins to give us a picture, just a little prelude of what's going to become the major note of the Bible about somebody who's prepared to die so others can live. Somebody who's prepared to be bound so others can go free. Does that remind you of anybody? It's meant to. It's meant to. That's why the Bible's many books in one book, because it's one big story. And Judah tastes amazing grace. Do you know something? God bears with our fallenness, our brokenness, and our stupidity. God bears with it and tolerates it. Not so we indulge it, but that He might redeem us. That's why I'm a Christian. Because no other faith in the world has this at its heart, a God who's in the reclamation business. Of course, this is just from uh, fiction, the phoenix. What happens to the phoenix? It's just reborn from the ashes. <laughs> That's fiction. It doesn't happen. But in gospel fact, do you know what? It does. In fact, uh, Isaiah the prophet said this, provide for those who grieve in Zion to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. That's Joseph's life. That's Jacob's, Judah's life. That's my life. That's your life. It's ashes. But God can bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of heaviness. He gives beauty for ashes. Some years ago now, I was coming down a motorway for the second time in 10 weeks. They'd redone the engine on the M1, going home. And the redone engine blew up. Nothing to do with my driving style, I'm sure. RAC come out, pull her on the back of a trailer. Instead of getting home at 11 o'clock, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, 4 a.m., the guy's rolling my vehicle off and just parking it back in front of my house. I said to him, it's at least one way to save petrol, isn't it? <laughs> He'd heard the joke. He was not happy bunny. <laughs> There I was, stuck with a blowing up engine on the M1 late at night, and one phone call brought RAC recovery, and it brought me home. 
God's in the recovery business, my friend. God's in the recovery business. You can stay broken and blowing up on the motorways and side roads and cul-de-sacs of life. But one heartfelt call to his throne of grace can stick you on a trailer that will bring you home and begin maybe a repair job that will set you right from here to eternity. Thank God for Judah. And more than that, oh, thank God for Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for giving us passages like this in your word that we would be tempted just to bounce over and draw a moral lesson or two from, but thank you that you have written Judah and us into your bigger purposes for this world. And thank you that no one needs stay the way they are, no one needs stay where they are. When we can get on that emergency call line to you, help, Lord, forgive, Lord, cleanse, Lord, renew, Lord, restore ourselves and others, we pray. Thank you that, as we'll sing in a moment, out of the ashes, by your grace we can rise. Come and have mercy upon us. O oh, Jesus, full of truth and grace, more full of grace than I have sinned. Yet once again I seek thy face. Open thine arms and take me in. And freely my backslidings heal. And love the faithless sinner still. Bless you, wondrous Lord Jesus, that you can do it. Come to our aid in your name. Amen. Just stir. Uh...